uh, will be today in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11 is our text today. Just want to say a quick word to all who were here yesterday to help with our trunk or tree. Thank you so much for all the hard work that was put into that. I know that the outreach team did a great job of planning, organizing that, and uh, just we had a great turnout yesterday, both of uh, volunteers and of those who came out, and, uh, and our hope and prayer is that uh, we're blessed by, uh, by that service that we offer the community. Um, and I would encourage you, uh, as we move forward, that we would not just let uh, that be the end of it, but that we would pray for all those who came, that we would uh, consider how we can uh, continue to reach out into the community, that it would not just be that a bunch of people got candy yesterday, but uh, our hope and prayer is that uh, the Lord would use that to do more. And so often the Lord uses things that to us seem so small and mundane to do something greater. And that is our prayer for every outreach event that we do, that uh, the Lord would use it in a way beyond just the immediate context. And so I just wanted to say a quick word of thank you for all you who came out yesterday. And I think it was also a great time for all those who were there as well. With that being said, Hebrews chapter 12 and starting in verse 3, if you do not have a Bible, we will have it on the screen for you as well. And if you don't own a Bible, um, feel free to grab one of those Bibles in the pew and take that home with you and consider that our gift to you. With that being said, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them, but he disciplined us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your help today. As we come now to your word, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us in our reading, guide us in our understanding, guide us in our thoughts today. Lord, that you would reveal to us your goodness and your grace. Lord, a grace and a mercy that begins at the moment of salvation and continues on throughout all the rest of our lives. Lord, we praise you for that reality. And Lord, we come today to seek to understand what it looks like to be called children of God. We ask for your help. Pray that you would open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin today and we think about our passage, I was reminded as I was uh, reading this passage 
about a song that I learned whenever I was young in uh, VBS. We used to go to vacation Bible school at this old country church out in uh, kind of between Boonville and, and Chandler. And at this old country church, uh, we learned all kinds of old children's songs, songs that I had never heard of before, and most people that I talked to today have never heard of also. And there was one particular song that we used to sing at that old country church, at that VBS, that particularly I despise <laughs> to this day. It was a song called Apple Red Happiness. Let me ask real quick, has anyone in here ever heard the song Apple Red Happiness? No one, just as I suspected. That's a good thing. Because the song is really not all that great, if you ask me. The song goes like this. It says, apple red happiness, popcorn cheerfulness, cinnamon singing inside, peppermint energy, gumdrop holidays, when you give Christ your life. Isn't that the cheesiest thing you have ever heard in your life? It is so cheesy. And even whenever I was young and, and before I was a Christian even, I heard that song and I thought, man, that is so cheesy. The verse goes on to say, the benefits of God's great love are super satisfying. Throw away your sin. Let the sun shine in. Try it and you'll see how you can find apple red happiness, popcorn cheerfulness, and yada, yada, yada. The, the song itself was a catchy little tune. It was, it was unique in the way it was written for sure. But what is the message of the song, Apple Red Happiness? Maybe I'm being too hard on the writer. But when I hear that song, I hear, hey, guess what? Come to faith in Jesus, and everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fun. You're always going to be happy. You're always going to be having a good time. You're going to have the best food. You're going to have the best friends. You're going to have the best family. Come to faith in Jesus Christ, and all your problems in this world will cease. You'll have apple red happiness, popcorn cheerfulness, cinnamon singing inside. The lyrics of this song, by and large, are a gross misrepresentation of the Christian life, are they not? Well, who in here has come to faith in Christ and seen all their problems disappear? Has known nothing but happiness and, and candy and rainbows and unicorns? Not a one of us has. The Christian life is not all candy and rainbows and unicorns. And anyone who tries to sell it as such is selling you something other than the truth. Anyone trying to sell this is living some kind of Christian life that is utterly foreign to all of Christian history. Not only that, but anyone selling this kind of Christianity is completely ignorant to the reality that the vast majority of Christians outside the United States today face. Imagine how this song, Apple Red Happiness, would, would hit for, for those living in a majority Muslim country. Hey, come to faith in Christ and you'll have apple red happiness and popcorn cheerfulness and gumdrops and rainbows. Try explaining that to the child who just lost their father who was killed when he came to faith in Christ. This reality is not true of the Christian life. For us here in the West, it certainly is not for those living in other countries who faith in Jesus Christ, who, who giving themselves to the Lord means giving themselves over to death and persecution and suffering. 
by and large, that is what it is meant to be a Christian for, for many of those who have come to faith in Christ throughout history. It is not meant that the rest of their life here on earth has been nothing but happiness, but rather, largely, it has exponentially increased their pain and their suffering. That is not the Christian life, one of gumdrops and rainbows. But as we know, even from our lives here in the West, which by and large are relatively comfortable, coming to faith in Christ doesn't mean all your problems go away. But what it does mean is that the afflictions and the sorrows and the sufferings that we face in this life have meaning. We recognize as believers, as followers of the one true God, that he is powerful enough to take the difficult things in our life, to take the sufferings in our life and to use them and to use them for our good and for his glory. That is the point of this passage The point of our passage today here is to open our eyes to the reality of what it means to be a Christian and to help us to see rightly. And our passage today starts in a way that is right and good where we are called, first of all, to consider Christ and what he endured so that we might not grow weary, so that we might not grow faint-hearted in our struggles in this life. Our text today helps us see the suffering and the difficulties of life and to see them in their proper light. Not that they go away when we come to faith in Christ, but that as children of God, we can know that the struggles and the pains that we go through in this life serve our good as the discipline of God. And I want us to see today from our text Three truths regarding the discipline of God so that we might rightly understand and rightly run the race that we are in. The first thing that I want us to see concerning the discipline of God is the necessity of discipline. These verses here in Hebrews chapter 12 cause us to change our perspective on afflictions and difficulties that we face in this life. What are the normal human reactions to the difficulties that we face, to adversities, to frustrations in life? Even for Christians, we know that a normal response for us, and certainly the one that we are prone to, is one of frustration. It's one of indignation, or even one of self-pity. This is how we as human beings naturally respond when things are difficult for us in life, when we come across adversity, and certainly when we face persecution. It is often our natural response to be frustrated, and oftentimes frustrated with the Lord. It's not uncommon for us to grow indignant. Why do we deserve these things? We are seeking to follow the Lord. We are seeking to obey Him. Why should things be so difficult for us? And certainly, I think everyone in here could admit that, that pity has oftentimes plagued our understanding of affliction and difficulties in life. When we face hard times, how often do we move into the woe is me category of I don't deserve this? Instead of reacting like this, the way that we naturally want to, our text today ought to cause us to change our perspective and help us realize that there is value in suffering, that there is value in afflictions. 
And then we can begin to be disciplined by the difficulties that we face. I want us to consider, there's a, there's a few ways that we can think about adversity and difficulties in this life as this text is directing us and see value in it, see the necessity of it. First of all, it is through discipline, it is through this kind of training that we achieve the strength to run the Christian race well. We've been exhorted at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 to run and to run with endurance the race that is set before us, to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run the race with endurance. And one of the ways in which we are enabled, we are strengthened, we are empowered to run well is through the discipline of the Lord. One of the ways in which I think we misunderstand a text like this at times is is that we think of the discipline of the Lord only in terms of punitive. We think exclusively of discipline as the Lord reacting to something bad that we have done. And certainly that is an aspect of the discipline of the Lord. There is, is chastisement that comes, as our text says. The Lord chastises every son whom he receives. But the discipline of the Lord is more than just chastisement. It's more than just punishing us when we have done something wrong. It's more than just correcting, correct, correcting us when we have sinned against him, though that is a part of discipline. But discipline is more than that. It is all-encompassing. It is instructive. It is, it is corrective, but it is also instructive and guiding us in our lives. Much like we discipline ourselves in order to eat better, to lose weight, to grow our muscles, that is a part of the discipline that we, that we face in the Christian life. That is the part of the discipline that the Lord brings. Consider what it, what it takes to grow our muscles. For those who work out and lift weights, what is actually happening when, that, when we do that, when we lift weights, when we strain our muscles? What actually happens when a person works out, when they exercise, when they strain their muscles, and then over time see muscles growing, is that in those moments when we strain our muscles, we actually create small tears in our muscles. We create these small tears, we create small amounts of damage to our muscles, so that as the muscles repair, they grow and they strengthen and are even stronger than they were before. That is what causes our muscles to grow when we work them out, when we strengthen them, when we exercise. In a very similar way as Christians, it is by this kind of training, this kind of discipline, that we are strengthened in order to run the race well. It is in this same kind of way that our, our spiritual muscles, if you will, are strengthened. It is through adversity. It is through training. It is through this kind of discipline that the Lord brings upon us. We can see from this understanding that the discipline of, of the Lord involves more than just correcting us when we've done something wrong, but it also involves a training us, a building us up, a growing us so that we might be able to run the race better. There is a reason that the New Testament writers on multiple occasions tell us of the importance of maturity, of being found mature in Christ, of moving on from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, of growing in the Lord. The means by which this happens is through the discipline of God. It is through adversity. It is through hardship. All of that the Lord uses to discipline us. So we see that the necessity of this discipline is what causes us to run well, but also another thing that 
that is necessary that this discipline require that this discipline brings into the life of the Christian is holiness. In verse 10 we see at the end of verse 10 that he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. The Bible is clear in the call upon the Christian life to be holy, to pursue holiness, to be set apart by God. And as much as we might not like it, we we wish that this holiness that we are called to is something that just instantly happened overnight, that we just were instantly cleansed of our sin, that we were instantly made like Christ. But that's not the reality of the Christian life, is it? The process of sanctification by which we are made more and more and more holy is just that. It is a process. It is something that the Christian endures all of our lives. And it is something that the Lord works in us that he does so by discipline, by bringing adversity in our life, by bringing difficulties in our life. And yes, at times, even by bringing persecution into our life to correct us, to grow us to make clear for us the path in which we are to walk, to expose our sin and our weakness and to weed it out. Holiness is what we are called to. It is what we are to aspire to. But it is not something that we can attain by our own strength, but only when we are disciplined by the Lord. But here is some good news then, that the Lord is working this process in us. That the Lord is working in us the process that produces holiness. This process is called discipline. If you are Christ today, if you belong to the Lord, then he is disciplining you. Today, as you face adversity, that is the Lord's discipline. And it is necessary for you to be holy. If you are persecuted in your workplace, that is the discipline of the Lord. And it is necessary for you to be made holy. If life is difficult for you, That is necessary for you to be made holy. We can't emphasize it enough that the Christian life does not mean everything is going to go perfect for you. For many, a Christian has been struck with illness, has been struck with debilitating disease, has lost the use of limbs, arms, legs, eyes. Consider one Johnny Erickson Tata. If you're not familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, she has an amazing, amazing story of, of a tragic accident in which she lost the use of her arms and her legs and became a, a quadriplegic. And yet Johnny Erickson Tata would tell you today that all that she has gone through in her life, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the sorrow and, and hardships that she has to face because of her situation... All of it the Lord has used to to purify her, to make her holy, to discipline her. And let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if Johnny Erickson Tata can lose the, the ability to use her arm and legs and count that as joy and see the value and the necessity of the discipline of God even in that, surely we can in what we face here in our lives. The discipline of the Lord is a good and right thing, and it is necessary for us. It is necessary for us to run the race well and ultimately for us to be made holy. The second thing I want us to see about the discipline of the Lord is to consider who it is that disciplines us, to consider the Father who disciplines. 
in order to help us to understand the concept of discipline that's being presented here, the author relates it to the discipline of earthly fathers towards their children. This is a very helpful way for us to consider how it is that the Lord disciplines us. Most basically, the point being made here is that even earthly fathers discipline us, and they do so for our benefit. How much more than our heavenly Father, whose love and compassion for us dwarves that of earthly fathers. Even the most amazing, most good and right earthly father who loves his children well, better than any earthly father before him. The love and compassion of God our Father in heaven dwarfs even his love and his compassion for his children. The love of God, his compassion, dwarfs that of earthly fathers so that we can trust that even as earthly fathers discipline out of love and discipline for the good of their children, our God in heaven also disciplines us and disciplines us for our benefit. There are a few implications of this reality, of this, of this connection that the Lord draws here in this text. There's a few implications that can be drawn. First of all, is that if you are not disciplined by God, then you are not a child of God. This is what he says in verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So first of all, we recognize that the fact that we are disciplined by God is because he loves us. It is because we are his children. In other words, discipline is a sign of love and fatherly affection from God. And we know this to be true. If you're a parent in here, then you know that the reason you discipline your children is out of love for them. It is because they are your children and you care for them and you are responsible for them. All of us have, have probably seen other children doing things acting up, doing something that maybe they, we know they shouldn't be doing. But what is it that we say? It's not my kid. Oh, it's a common refrain for me. See kids doing things they're probably not supposed to be doing. I don't know, maybe their parents should step in and stop them, but <laughs> not my kid, right? This is what it looks like to not be a child. If the Lord were to look at us and say, you know what? That's fine, I don't really care about correcting him. I don't really care about disciplining him. I don't really care about training him. Not my kid. That's not the place we want to be. But that is not the case for those who are the Lord's. Those who belong to him are disciplined by him, are trained by him because he loves them and he cares for them. I think many times we, we think that, that anger is the opposite of love. But that's not always the case, is it? Really, the absence of love in a relationship results not necessarily in anger, but in apathy. The father who does not love his son is the one who never disciplines him, never corrects him, never chastises him. Imagine if I were to, to see my son, and, th and this has happened, as my son Elijah, on more than one occasion, has opened the door without anyone knowing him, and stepped outside of our house, never saying anything to us, having no one with him. 
three years old, opening the door, walking outside. What is in order for me as a father who loves this child? What am I to do at this point? It is not to say, eh, he'll be fine. He can get back in. It's no problem. Our street's not that busy. No worries. No church family. That's called apathy. And that is not what a father does who loves his children. Rather, what I am called to do as a father and what I've had to do with my son Elijah is in those moments to take action. In fact, to take swift and severe action so that he might be corrected, so that he might be trained. All of this for his good. I do not, do not train my son in this way. I do not chastise him in this way. I do not correct him with, with fierceness in this way because of hatred of him, because I don't care for him, because I don't like him, but because of how much I love him and care about him and want what's best for him. How much more is that true of our Heavenly Father who loves us so much more than we love our children, who cares for us so much more than we care for our children, and who knows what's best for us so much more than what we know for our children? The second thing that we can see in this comparison is the beautiful reality of having a loving Father who disciplines us, but also who disciplines us perfectly. Earthly fatherhood is one of those things that serves for us as a reflection of a heavenly spiritual reality. The relationship that's shared between a father and a child or a mother and a child, this love, this bond is a reflection of the relationship that God has to his children. But as we know, that reflection of this spiritual reality is oftentimes distorted, it is oftentimes diminished, and it is diminished, it is distorted because of sin because of wickedness, because of evil in the world. So when we consider our own fathers and how they disciplined us, we see and we know the shortcomings, don't we? As an adult, I can look back at, at how my father used to discipline me. And man, I can see the way in which he didn't do so perfectly. There were times when my dad was prone to anger. I know no dads in here can relate to that. There were times in which my dad reacted poorly to me. Even though I was in the wrong and even though discipline was deserved, my dad did not carry it out well. I know as a father, I don't always carry out discipline well. And yet by God's grace, even discipline that is distorted and affected by sin is still oftentimes beneficial for us. I can think back to times when my father reacted poorly. And he would sometimes raise his voice. And he would sometimes get angry. And he would sometimes be concerned more with what people thought about his children than what was actually true of his children. Don't we discipline that way sometimes? We're a little laxed in our discipline until we're out at the grocery store and we see someone we know. And then when our child starts to do something they're not supposed to do, all of a sudden it <laughs> just seems a little bit like it deserves discipline more than normal. What are we doing in that moment? We're disciplining then out of pride, are we not? And yet we know the reality that is true, that even when I think back to how my father disciplined me, and my prayer is that by God's grace, when my son thinks back to how I've disciplined him, he'll see that it wasn't perfect. He'll see that I failed in my discipline of him, and yet even still, he might see the benefit that was wrought by it. I'm so thankful for my father who disciplined me, and who disciplined me imperfectly yet discipline me all the same by God's grace I can see the benefit that that wrought in me 
Again, church family, how much more benefit is it to us to know that we have a heavenly father who is perfect, who has never disciplined out of anger, who has never disciplined out of pride, who has never disciplined too harshly, but one who always disciplines perfectly and rightly. And this is a great encouragement to us when we face hardships, is it not? That the hardships we face, yes, they're hard. Yes, the discipline of the Lord hurts. But as John MacArthur says regarding this text, the Lord, in, the, in the discipline, the Lord may hurt, but he will never harm. God's discipline does not always feel good. In fact, <laughs> what does verse 11 say? For the moment, all discipline seems painful. In fact, every time the Lord disciplines us in that moment, it does not feel good. None of us in the moment of discipline wants discipline. And yet we can know, we can trust that we have a heavenly father who cares for us, who loves us, and who disciplines us perfectly and rightly. And that ought to begin to affect the way we view hardships, affect the way we view, we view difficulties. And for further encouragement, if we need encouragement of the father's love for us and his kindness toward us, simply go back to verse 3 and consider what Christ endured so that we might be adopted. And included into the family of God. Consider all that Christ has done in order to bring us into God's family. In order that we might be adopted by him. Consider that and trust that that same God who did all that is now for us and for our good. His love has not wavered an inch since the moment that he sacrificed his son on the cross to adopt us. His love remains the same. Yesterday and today and forever. And his love in chastising us, in disciplining us, and correcting us is the same love by which he redeemed us. Consider Christ. This is a refrain that we ought to return to repeatedly over and over and over again in our life. In every situation we find ourselves, when we are facing hardship and persecution, consider Christ. Whenever we experience joy in our life and good things, which we do, consider Christ and praise him for that. In every season, in every moment, in every turn of life, consider Christ. The third thing that we ought to see from our text today, as we've seen the necessity of discipline, we've considered the father who disciplines. The third thing I want us to see is the joy of discipline. Now, this is an interesting, interesting thing to consider. How could this be that there is joy in discipline? I mean, what does is, what is our text describe to us as discipline? Hardship, pain, even persecution. What joy is there to be found in that, in the discipline of the Lord? Well, our answer is found in verse 11. Though for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How is it that we can find joy in our suffering, that we can find joy in the midst of discipline? It is by knowing that the discipline that the Lord brings to his children is for our good. That it will result in something more. That there is a fruit that, was, that is going to be bore from these seeds that are being sown. And that fruit is what? It is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
despite all that I have said regarding the reality of suffering, of affliction, and even though I think the description of the Christian life as peppermint energy and gumdrop holidays is foolish, that doesn't mean that we are without joy in this life. It doesn't mean that there is nothing but sorrow and gloom and despair to be found in this life. On the contrary, what are we told by James? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When we meet trials, what are we to count it as? As joy. Because of what we know to be true of the discipline of God. That the Lord is using our trials, that he is using our afflictions, and he is using them to grow us into the image of Christ. He is using us to discipline, to train us, to correct us. Even though the trials and difficulties of the discipline of the Lord hurt, we can have joy. And we can have joy because we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Not just the good things, not just the, the blessings that we see the Lord bestowing on us, but even the affliction, even the pain, even the discipline works for our good. We can have joy in the midst of discipline because we know that the discipline of the Lord will yield fruit in its due season. And we can trust in that. We can cling to that. We have a hard time believing this, though, sometimes. We have a hard time believing that the affliction that we are in right now could be anything other than bad. And that's because we have a hard time looking past the affliction. We have a hard time looking past the pain, past the difficulties that we are currently in. How is it that we can look past these difficulties, though? By looking to Christ. This is a common refrain we've heard over and over again for the past few weeks. Look to Christ. Take your eyes off of the pain, off of the affliction, and look to Christ. Consider Him. Consider what He has done to purchase us. Consider the faithfulness of God displayed in Christ's sacrifice. And know that He who began a great work in us will see it through to completion that we have not been left abandoned, that we have not been left in our suffering, and that we are not facing suffering in vain, whatever the suffering might be. One last thing that I want to draw our attention to in this passage, one particular line is found in verse 11 that we need to consider. Verse 11, I'm gonna read it for us one more time. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to whom? To those who have been trained by it. You see, church family, it is very possible for us to experience the Lord's discipline and yet not be trained by it. Just as it's possible to experience discipline from our earthly parents and not be trained by it. My mom used to tell me of, of young little Denton when he was three, four, five, six years old. And times when my father would spank me and there were times when, after receiving a spanking from my dad, in defiance, in hardness of heart, young little Denton would turn and, with tears running down his eyes, say, that didn't hurt. And you want to know what I got? More discipline. My dad said, okay, just hang on. We'll get there. Even for my son, Nathan, there are so many times when, as I discipline 
my son, the defiance, the, the hardness of heart finds its way to the surface. And even in the midst of discipline and being reprimanded, he says, no. He refuses the reprimand. He re refuses the discipline. He refuses to be trained by it. And church family, the more we refuse to be trained by the discipline of God, the harder it's going to be for us. The more it is that we're going to suffer, the more it is that we're going to face trials and difficulties. And the harder it is for those difficulties that we do face are going to be. When we fail to be trained by the discipline of God, it is so important for us to be trained so that we might reap the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So then how do we do that? How do we ensure that we are being trained by the trials and afflicted and, and trained by the persecutions that we face? Because we know that everything I've talked about today, by and large, much of the afflictions, of the trials, of the difficulties that we face in life, non-believers face too, don't they? Coming upon, uh, upon difficulties in finances, that is not unique to Christians, is it? No, all people face that. Sickness, disease, illness, all of those things are faced by non-believers as well. Loss, suffering the loss of family members and friends. That is not unique to the Christian experience either. So how is it then that that, for the unbeliever, serves of no value to them, but for the believer, it becomes discipline for us? And how can we be trained by it? I would propose this strategy. I would propose that we don't respond to hardships the way we want to, the way we're prone to as human beings, that we not respond with frustration and indignation and self-pity, though that is easy to do when we face trials. Instead, we ought to respond to hardship by considering a few questions, asking ourselves a few things. We ought to consider this question when things get difficult and when we suffer in life. First of all, what is the Lord teaching me through this? How often do we ask ourselves these questions whenever we find ourselves in the midst of difficult situations? In the midst of life not going the way we want it to go? How often do we ask ourselves, what is the Lord teaching me in this? He's not trying to hide that from us. The Lord isn't trying to teach us a lesson and train us in a specific way, but saying, I'm not going to tell you what it is. The Lord wants us to know. He wants us to be cured. He wants us to be trained. He wants us to be disciplined. So we ought to ask the question when we face hardships, what is the Lord teaching me through this? We also ought to ask the question, what sin is this trial, is this difficulty exposing in my life? For oftentimes it does, doesn't it? It is oftentimes in trials and tribulations and difficulties that sin in our life is brought to the surface. This is the part of the refining process that the Lord puts us through to refine us, to purify us. It is through these kinds of difficulties. It is, it is through this kind of discipline. So that's another question we ought to ask ourselves when we face difficulties. What is the sin that is being exposed in my life through this difficulty? Again, church family, the Lord is happy to reveal that to you. That's not something we oftentimes want to know, but it's something we need to know. Why? So that we can, as we've done here today, confess that to the Lord. Be rid of that. Be cleansed of that. So that we might be made holy. So that we might partake in the holiness of Christ. These are the things we ought to be doing when we face hardships and trials and persecutions. And these are totally countercultural. 
But this is what, as believers, we are called to do. And as believers who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, if you ask these questions in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulty, you will be trained by the difficulty. You will be disciplined by God, and you will benefit from that discipline. And by God's grace, you will begin to see the value in it. I would encourage you, church family, if you know of a believer who is more mature than you, who has been a Christian for a long time, who is mature in the faith, just go to them and ask them about the difficulties they faced in life. Ask them about the hardships that they've experienced and what they have done to produce fruit in their life. And I promise you, they'll have stories. They will have stories. They will be able to tell you about what they've gone through and how they have seen the Lord work in that how they've seen the Lord shape and mold their lives and discipline them and train them through the hardships. And we can take courage. This is another reason why we need our church family, why we need believers who are more mature than us, so that we can be encouraged, so that we can take hope, heart, so that we can have hope in this life. I think most of all with those mature believers in Christ would encourage you towards it's to fix your eyes on Christ. Consider him, as verse 3 says. Let us dispense with the foolish view of apple-red happiness. And let us replace it with better perspectives, with better refrains. Refrains like we sing about here on Sunday mornings. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let our refrain be like that. Or let our refrain say, so when I'm drowning out at sea and your breakers and your waves crash down on me, I'll recall your safety scheme. You're the one who made the waves. You're the son, your son went out to suffer in my place and to tell me that I'm safe. Let this be our refrain when we see the breakers and the waves crashing all around us. Let our refrain be, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. Let this be our refrain, church family. Let it not be one of sorrow, of self-pity, of indignation when we face trials, when we face suffering. But let it be one that acknowledges the suffering, but then turns our eyes to Christ, finds hope in the midst of that suffering finds a way to take joy in the discipline of God. Let's pray.